Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 31 of Unknown Orbits, The Waveries by Frederick Brown. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Our story this week concerns invasion from a very interesting alien, unusual alien. Our story begins with an advertising executive getting drunk, unhappy about his job. He's unhappy about the fact that he's being forced by his boss to have to listen to some terrible radio programs. He's supposed to be trying to get an idea of what sort of program they would want to be producing advertising for, and he's not happy about it. But then in the middle of the broadcast, he begins to hear Morse code coming over the radio. He figures out in short order that it's the letter S being repeated over and over again. So long story short, he figures out that this is the original radio signal, the first transatlantic radio signal sent out by Marconi himself 43 years ago. And with the help of some very smart friends, they figure out that these radio signals have gone 20 some odd light years out into space and then have turned around and returned back to us. So what they later discover, the whole world later discovers, is that inside of this signal coming back to Earth are hidden waveries, which are these strange energy beings, alien creatures who come to Earth and begin immediately eating all electrical impulses. First, they take the lights down, then they take down the whole power grid, and then anybody that tries to start a car, their electrical energy gets eaten. And before you know it, they have completely shut down modern society at least as far as electricity goes. And human beings respond in a magnificent group effort in corralling all of the resources that we have available that don't require electricity. And that includes steam engine locomotives. That includes, what else, Steve? What else do they corral besides steam engine locomotives? Specifically in the story, water power? Water, I think some water power. Horses, that's the other big thing. Oh, yes. They begin a crash program of breeding huge numbers of horses. So literally what happens is world society is taken back to the horse and buggy days. And that's it. That's the story, is the aliens are not defeated. Humanity does not triumph over the enemy. They simply consciously adapt to a world without electricity. And... Everybody lives happily ever after in a nice pre-industrial society. And they make the point that they're happier because it's yeah no longer the stresses of modern life. Yeah, the end of the story is a very bucolic, serene moment that the main character enjoys in this wonderfully stress-free environment. I loved it. I really liked this story a lot. I was not expecting the turn that it took at the end. 
You know, I was expecting a standard alien invasion movie where somebody figures out the one trick, the one clue, the one secret device that has to be built to stop the aliens. And there was none of that in this story. They basically realized they were screwed. There was nothing they can do. They were never going to have electricity again. So they just adapted. And I loved that. I really loved it. I've always considered the story kind of a cozy it's a cozy, not end of the world, but change of the world. And you can easily imagine yourself in that situation. And it's a fun ride. It is. It is very much a cozy ending. They return to, a, in some regards, a better world. There were a couple of thoughts I had. First of all, the main character's name is George Bailey, which was kind of distracting. Though, since you mentioned it to me, I realized why Frederick Brown wouldn't have known about George Bailey. How's that? Of course, we're talking about It's a Wonderful Life. The movie came out in the 1940s and was largely forgotten. It wasn't until the 70s or 80s when it was... It fell into public domain. Yes, and got played incessantly. Yeah, so low-budget TV stations, UHF stations, would play it parentally because it was free to play, basically, because it was a public domain movie. So yeah, that's a good point, but that was distracting. And the only other nit I had about this is a fairly minor nit, is that he describes the aliens floating through space on waves of ether, which I think we've already discovered in a previous, I think the Edmund Hamilton story we talked about, the whole concept of ether floating in between the stars is bullshit. Yes, at the time I pointed out in a very pedantic way that the Mitchelson-Morley experiments of, I think, 1885 disproved the idea of an ether, and it took some people a century or more to hear that news. Right. So I don't know that Frederick Brown was renowned for being a hard science fiction writer. I, I know that he wrote a lot of non-science fiction. He was fairly successful as a crime and mystery writer in addition to science fiction. He wrote a lot of stuff with humor in it. And one of the things that I'm familiar with, because I just recently read it, was his book Nightmares and Giesenstacks, which was a collection of very short, sort of shaggy dog stories, almost like a joke. They were like a extended joke with a snap surprise ending. I always have trouble remembering what shaggy dog story means. It's basically a, a simple short story with kind of a snap surprise ending. I mean, if the term evoked that image better, I'd have a chance at remembering it. But yeah, I don't know where the term shaggy dog came from. I should look it up. Maybe we should have done that ahead of this podcast. <laughs> we should have done, I don't know how important that is. But at any rate, I don't believe he was renowned for being a very hard science, science fiction writer. So I guess we can probably forgive him for using the term ether to explain yeah. how these radio wave electricity eating aliens got to Earth. But this is one of your favorites though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It also has one of my favorite lines in a science fiction story. There's a part where they have a newspaper headline that says, Earth Invaded, says scientist. And then a later edition comes out, Earth Invaded, say scientists. He throws in that line, which I love. Funny what moving an S from the ending of a verb to the ending of a noun can do. That is a nice little piece of writing. He was a pretty good writer. I would love to read some of his crime and mystery stories. I was unaware that he wrote any. Was it under the same name? Yeah, I don't think he used a pen name. I don't believe so. He was widely adapted. A number of his stories were adapted. The most famous of them is his probably most famous story, Arena, was adapted by the original Star Trek series. 
That was the story where Captain Kirk is transported to a planet and has to battle the Gorn, armed only with rocks and spears, and yeah. eventually he conveniently finds the ingredients for gunpowder laying around. I don't think that was in the original story. I know I read the story arena years ago. Yeah, same here. I couldn't remember it. But I do want to say, it just it always annoyed the hell out of me that Kirk took handfuls of the base ingredients of gunpowder and just shoved them into a barrel <laughs> like a burrito. They were not mixed. Yeah. <laughs> but he was also adapted by Guillermo del Toro. A story of his naturally was adapted into a short film recently. The Last Martian was adapted by Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The Screaming Mimi was a full-length movie. It was like a noir movie in the late 1950s, starring a blonde bombshell whose name escapes me at the moment. So he was someone who wrote well enough and wrote accessibly enough to be often adapted for television and into movies. So good writer. I mean, Frederick Brown. The Nightmares and Giesenstacks were enjoyable. A few of them probably aren't suitable for modern audiences to some degree. Are you saying they didn't age well? A couple of them did not age well. Okay. But good writer, good story. I'm glad that you had this one on your list, and I'm glad that I got a chance to read it. So as long as we have the opportunity talking about an alien invasion story, we're going to take the time to digress and talk about alien invasions, the different types of alien invasion stories that have been throughout the years, and some of the more famous examples. We came up with our own categories. We did come up with a couple of categories. Not all inclusive. I'm sure if we missed something, it'd be nice if someone let us know. But the most direct and oldest version of an alien invasion story is the conquest story. That's where the aliens come to Earth and start shooting and blowing things up and killing people, and they violently take over the Earth and in some cases are out to exterminate the human race. So the most famous, the earliest example of this is the H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. I found a wonderful little quote from Mr. Wells talking to another writer about the writing of this story. He had just finished writing the story, sent it off to be published, and was discussing it with another writer. And he said, I'm doing the dearest little serial for Pearson's new magazine, in which I completely wreck and sack Woking, killing my neighbors in painful and eccentric ways, then proceed via Kingston and Richmond to London, which I sack, selecting South Kensington for feats of peculiar atrocity. So I think he was picking some neighborhoods, including his own, that he was not particularly fond of, and he made sure that they suffered the worst at the hands of the Martians. Well, that's got to be a little bit of fun you add in there, of course. We all do that from time to time. I don't know if you noticed it in reading my draft of the Nowhere Navy, but I did drop a name into that story that was the name of somebody that both you and I had grievances against in the past. Yes, and he turned out to be a terrible, disgusting human being, if I recall. Yes, uh, coincidentally. So that's fun for a writer, to indulge yourself that way. So there are hundreds, thousands of invasion stories, conquest stories. The early science fiction pulps were just filled with them. You know, they were basically ripping off H.G. Wells, Yeah. You know, which was a hugely popular story. That was one of the first stories, I believe, that Hugo Gernsbach reprinted in Amazing Stories when he started that magazine back in 1926. Yes. In fact, not long ago, I had reason to look at the cover of the first, and Wells was on it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a stock item for science fiction fans. 
So do you have any conquest stories that were a little different or that were interesting or memorable for you? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Conquest is not as fun as the others. Well, Independence Day, that was a conquest story. So anytime you want to have lots of CGI and multi-million dollar budget to blow up famous landmarks. I'm not sure if it counts as conquest, but one of my favorite 50s movies, Earth versus the Flying Saucers. That was a conquest movie. Good point. They came to Earth because their planet was dying, I believe. And they did wind up blowing up the U.S. Capitol and crashing into the Washington Monument. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ray Harryhausen. Right. You know, one of my childhood idols, Ray Harryhausen. That was a conquest movie. It was not like Independence Day or even the 1950s adaptation of War of the Worlds, a big budget movie. It was a smaller budget movie, so they only blew up a few landmarks. Probably the majority of the 50s science fiction movies were invasions. Well, I'm trying to think. There were not that many actual invasion movies because, like I said, big majority of the 1950s science fiction movies were B-movies. So they were lower budget movies. And an invasion would be, I mean, a physical invasion where they come in and blow stuff up would be expensive. Oh, yes. That's why you had invisible aliens showing up. My favorite one, I think it's something Phantom, the Phantom from Outer Space, I think where it literally was an invisible alien. So you had things like chairs being pulled on (laughs) strings and doors opening by themselves. And it was just such a low-budget affair. When they finally revealed it, it was just like a bodybuilder with a skull cap on. (laughs) That was a really low-budget movie. That's like a pinnacle of low-budget filmmaking is you don't even show your monster for the entire movie because you're so cheap. That was an invasion movie, but it was an invasion by one alien, which is the ultimate low-budget movie, invasion story. We could only afford one alien, and we can't afford to show him on screen. Have I said it here before? One of my favorite movies, I say favorite, but I can't remember the plot or the title. The entire presence of the U.S. military was represented by a captain in a jeep being driven around by a private. Yes. Again, I don't remember the title of that one, but I do vividly remember like one third of the movie was them driving around in the the desert (laughs) in a jeep. And then one third of the movie was stock footage. And then one third of the movie was the actual aliens. And I'm sure they were just a guy in a rubber suit or something. It was (laughs) terrible. So a much more rich version of alien invasion is what I call the identity theft invasion. That's where they come to Earth and they begin to take over people, replace people, to stealthily, quietly kind of take over the planet. Either hypnotizing them possessing them or copying their bodies. Right, exactly. One of the more famous ones is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Now, in our next episode, we're actually going to talk about the author, Jack Finney, who wrote the original story The Body Snatchers was based on. But this was one of the great 1950s science fiction movies, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where the pods, it had the vegetable pods that were creating duplicates of people. And the actor, I can't remember his name. Kevin McCarthy was the main actor. And he was in the 1978 remake. Yeah, briefly. And the 1978 remake was pretty good. Actually, all three of the adaptations of the story, they were all pretty good in their own way. Three? What was the There third? was one in the 1990s. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, it was okay. It was probably the weakest of the three, but it wasn't bad. So that's where people are replaced by these alien pods. And then they disappear 
crumble into dust or something, and they're completely replaced by aliens, which is similar to a story that we covered in a previous episode by John W. Campbell, who goes there, which was, again, the basis for famous pair of movies, The Thing from Another World and John Carpenter's The Thing, where, again, people are being completely replaced and taken over by shape-shifting alien that's able to make a complete duplicate of a human being. That's a classic story. It's like a subset of paranoia where you can't even trust the person you know as being the person you know. That's what makes the John Carpenter version such a great movie, is that he really mined the paranoia that that situation would create, where you don't know which people around you have been turned into alien replacements. So that's one of the things that made that a really great movie. And then there's two other ones on my list that are not replacement stories. They temporarily take people over. The first one is Robert Heinlein's famous Puppet Masters from 1951. I think you and I have both read that one. And did you know it was made into a movie in the 90s, I think? Yes, you've alerted me to that, and I've got it on my list, and I haven't been able to find it. It is on my list to try to catch up with that one. It's got one of my favorite actors in it, Donald Sutherland. It's really good. It's really one of Heinlein's best stories, I think. Key people in government, they're taken over by these aliens, and they try to overthrow the government and overthrow civilization. And there's a lot of action. It's, it's action-packed, how they respond back. Given that it's Heinlein, maybe it's an allegory for communism. Allegedly it was. I was reading Wikipedia, or maybe it was Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, about the story. And he said that he was watching the news or reading a magazine that was talking about nuclear disarmament or something like that. And he got so mad about it that he decided to write this, from his perspective, anti-communist story, you know, that the aliens were substituting for communists coming in and infiltrating American society. So yes, it was very much a right-wing, anti-communist parable for Heinlein. But so well-written. It is. It's good. Like I said, I think it's one of the best things he's written. I've only read about a half a dozen of his works, but that was one that really struck me as being very good. Interestingly, what I also found out while I was reading about the story was apparently he injected a bunch of sex into it. That at one point, the aliens were having an orgy among themselves. And obviously, in 1951, that Galaxy magazine, that got cut out. But apparently, when it got re-anthologized many years later, the editors put that stuff back in. I know I've read a novel version of Puppet Masters. Right. It must have been an earlier one that didn't yeah, have the sex. Yeah, me too. I don't remember. Because I'm going to try to find that now. Yeah, I don't remember that either. But that's really one of the best identity theft stories, along with John W. Campbell's Who Goes There. And the last one that I have on my list is a personal favorite. It's the movie It Came From Outer Space, which was, I believe, produced in 1954. A spaceship lands in the desert, and it needs to be repaired. And the aliens, who are kind of like these blob-like aliens, go out and take over the mind of local people to help them to repair the ship, because they physically need them to do the work to repair the ship, and they also need materials and supplies and so forth. It's a very paranoid movie. It's directed by Jack Arnold, who directed Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Incredible Shrinking Man, a number of other classics of the era. The initial screen treatment was written by Ray Bradbury, so it's got a good pedigree there, and I think that the story is very Bradburyan in the sense that it's very much focused on the relationships of the people involved and the fact that this one scientist, played by Hugh Marlowe, 
is kind of tripping to what's going on and trying to convince people. And he's not sure if the people that are not believing him are actually taken over or not. So there's that paranoid element. It was a 3D movie. It was one of those early 3D movies. Oh, that explains the ending. Or maybe I'm thinking of the beginning when it's crashing. Yeah, it's going right at the screen. The flaming spaceship is coming right out of the screen. And I saw that in 3D at the Time Cinema. Oh. Which is, from where we are right now, it's just down the street practically. It's a little bit south and a little bit east, but it's not too far from here. For those of you not from Milwaukee, the Times Cinema is a sort of a revival theater. It's an old theater that shows old movies. Right now they're playing 80s rom-coms or 90s rom-coms. They've got a whole series of them. But I've seen a number of favorite movies of mine that I'd never seen in the theater, like the original Frankenstein and uh, a couple others. I saw the 3D version of this in the theater, and it was fun. It was silly, you know, like at one point, Hugh Marlowe looks through a telescope, and the telescope comes popping out of the screen. There's a lot of 3D silliness in that, but that was fun, and I've always liked that movie because I thought it was intelligent. It's an intelligent movie, and obviously being partially written by Ray Bradbury, that makes sense. And it turns out in the end that the aliens are somewhat benevolent. They're only taking people temporarily to help them so they can leave. So the next category is a little strange. We call it ignoring mankind invasion. That's where they don't target national monuments and people and governments. They just show up and just start taking what they want. And the Waveries, our story today, would be an example of that. The aliens just want to eat the electricity out of the atmosphere. There's no communication at all between humans and the invading aliens. Right. They're not interested in communicating at all. They're just there to take their stuff. Another example is The Kraken Wakes by John Wyndham. That's where aliens come up out of the sea and they just begin marching inland and gobbling up all kinds of resources. People are killed, but only because they get in the way of these creatures and their vehicles. I've been meaning to reread that since we mentioned it a few episodes ago. Me as well. I did read that not too long ago, but I would not mind reading it again. Because it's War of the Worlds from a different angle. The TV series, The Rig, had the main character reading that book. Yes. So the recent Amazon Prime series, The Rig, which was entertaining, I thought, which is about alien something or another coming up out of the depths of the ocean, as a nod to Mr. Wyndham, had a character reading that book. And you and I both got a nice little smile out of that when we saw that. So there's one other one I have here on the list that you suggested, Storm Warning. It's by Donald Wolheim. And the entire story is humanity witnessing an invasion and a repulsion of the enemy. These ethereal aliens that live in the air. That sounds familiar. Invisible to us. Arrive on a meteor or a comet. And... What happens is apparently we also have creatures like these in our atmosphere, and we never knew it. And the witness witnesses the sky battle between the different forces taking the form of weather fronts attacking each other. Well, that's interesting. It's a fun story. That's an interesting concept. So that's the uh, ignore mankind category. And then the last category that we came up with was what we call the benevolent invasion, where Aliens come to Earth, but they're not here to conquer us or enslave us or destroy us. They're here to help us, maybe. One of the most well-known versions of that is Childhood's End by... Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke. That is actually on our list 
to do a episode on in a future podcast. So in only two or three shows, I think it's coming yeah, up. It's soon. coming up fairly soon. So I better get my hands on that and actually read it. But my understanding, it is where they come to Earth and they're, we're here to to help you. Have you read it? Are you familiar enough with it? Well, yes, I'm a little confused because I would have sworn that it was required reading in the science fiction class that we both took in college. You know, <laughs> there's no way I could have completely forgotten that I even read that book. Maybe I'm thinking of a different class. Maybe. Maybe we took a different version of it under a different teacher. No, we were in the same class. We were in opposite corners, but there was a pillar in the room. Okay. And we never saw each other. We figured that out later. How do I not? Okay. Well, I'm going to have to reread it at any rate. But that's the benevolent invasion. And then there was one that you came up with, With Folded Hands by Jack Williamson. I mentioned it in an earlier show where there was a radio adaptation of it in the early to mid-1950s that was really good. In the future, robots are a common household appliance, and they're not very good. Suddenly, new robots show up that are great at doing everything. Their mission is to take all risk out of human life. To protect humans, they're banned from doing things like playing football or riding motorcycles, and they have to eat balanced diets and and things like that. That sounds terrible. And then the original inventor that created the new robots has been going from planet to planet one step ahead of them trying to develop a weapon Hmm. i will probably have a link to the actual radio show if people are interested okay one thing we've neglected to mention when we talk about including links the place to see the links is on our home page you go to the individual episodes page on unknownorbits.com Yes. That list of links doesn't show up on other sites. It does not. And thank you for reminding me that we need to point that out from time to time. There's one other story that I ran across that does not fit into these other categories neatly, also written by Frederick Brown, called Martians Go Home. A book and a movie. Right. In that story, Martians invade Earth, but they don't really do a lot of damage, except that they're extraordinarily annoying. And eventually, human beings evict them from Earth just because they're so annoying they can't stand them. The movie starred Randy Quaid. How did I miss that? And I forget her name, but the ex-wife in Independence Day. Oh, um, yeah, that actress. Yeah. The one who worked for the president. Was she in Big? No, she was not. No, she was in a TV show in the 90s. I don't remember which one, but... That actress, you know, the one that was in that movie. I'm sure she's used to being called that one actress. Yeah, that one actress that was in that one movie that everybody saw. So that actually sounds like a fun book. I might put that on my reading list. Martians Go Home. Did you have any other invasion stories that you can recommend to the readers or that were particular favorites of yours? There's a million of them. A good place to start is there's an anthology put together by Groff Conklin. The fact that it's Groff Conklin tells you two things. A, it's very good. And B, it was probably the first one of its type. Yeah, he was a really good anthologist back in my youth. I had some horror anthologies that he edited, and I would second what you just said, that he's a pretty good anthologist. And I believe the very first anthology of science fiction, which may have been called the Big Book of Science Fiction or maybe the Mammoth Book of Science Fiction, around 1949, I think, was done by him. Mm -hmm. And the particular alien invading anthology is Invaders of Earth. Okay, so that's a number of short stories about invasions. 
Yes, including one or two of the ones that we've mentioned today. That is a good starting point. Other ones? Not really. We have in our own collection a thematic index to science fiction, which mentioned a couple more anthologies on invasion. Um, I am leaving them out because they go into the 60s and 70s, but they exist. Sure, sure. And, you know, like I said at the beginning here, there were probably thousands of invasion stories written in the magazines over the years. We're just bringing out a few of our personal favorites and some particularly well-known versions. Okay, there's another favorite, which would be under the category of ignoring humans. Okay. The Leech by Robert Sheckley. Okay. It's a wonderful story. It's in that set that I have. Okay. Where a small seed drifts from space and lands on Earth, and it starts to grow. It absorbs matter, rearranges it, and adds to its mass. And it's kind of like a giant gray pancake, but it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's nothing they can do to get rid of it. Okay. So what do you do with a problem like that? So it's kind of a problem story as well. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for episode 31. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.